to know your ancestral language is to know the connection to your ancestors, to your past, to the way they saw the world, and then you interpret it, and now what you carry is going to be for the future. Hey friends, welcome to the Big Bright Dark Podcast, the place where we explore the questions, the complications, and the sometimes beautiful curiosities of making our way on a changing planet. In this episode, we go on a journey with Laura Wolelak. 20 years ago, Laura left behind an international art career for a $10 an hour office job. It was a moment of choice that ultimately transformed her relationship with her past, with her future, and with the land itself. This is a story that explores what can happen when we ask ourselves a few simple and honest questions. Questions about who we are, about where we come from, and questions about to whom and to what we are accountable. And I just want to say that these days, these kinds of reflections are feeling especially important to me. As I record this, waves of climate crisis news are rolling in so fast, it's hard to keep my head above water. No pun intended. And unprecedented wildfires are burning across the province where I live. And on a very personal note, this interview and others we have in the works continue to peel back the layers for me of my own role as someone who benefits from colonization and who lives as a settler on unceded territory. So it's a lot. And this episode is a gentle journey through some of it. It's the kind of episode, dear friends, that really benefits from a quiet space with little distraction. And if you do happen to be doing the dishes with kids running around your feet while you listen, that's great too. We hope that in whatever place you find yourself, you can settle in and travel with us. And one more thing. You will hear a cat purring at a few points in the interview. We think it's quite a lovely sound, and uh, we hope you do too. We'll see you on the other side. Aswell, Lumlamlut Walelak Tulsqui, Talitzel Quachiakto, Norman Kester of Berta, Squalix to Shwali, Duncan Kester Beatrice, Squalix to Cecila F. Uh, good day, my name is Laura Walelak, and uh, my ancestral name is Lumlamlut, and I live in Shokwek territory and that's the home, ancestral home of my father. The last time the uh, Halkamelem language was spoken in our family was my father's grandmother was a fluent speaker and uh, that would have been my great-grandmother and then my great-auntie Amy worked with the, the linguist here, Dr. Brent Galloway, and she was a fluent speaker and I remember her when I was a child. About 20 years ago, this will be my 20th year living here in Shokwek uh, tribe territory at a place called Chiakdo, which means fish weir in Upper Halkamelem. I, uh, I, I kind of got here in a funny way. 
I didn't just happen to come back here. Spirit brought me back here. I was making pottery and I was exhibiting and teaching around the world. I you know, taught work workshops in China and exhibited and in Australia and in Italy uh, throughout the United States. I was a you know, guest lecturer at a lot of universities. Uh, I specialize in hand building and primitive firing techniques and uh, doing comparative studies in indigenous people's pottery around the world. It was supposed to be my mom and dad that was gonna build a house on this land where I currently am. And this land originally belonged to my father's father. And I used to come up here a lot when I was a kid with my dad, of course, we'd help milk the cows and gather eggs and stuff like that. So about 20 years ago, my dad took an early retirement and they were gonna move up here. But he was on holiday and he had a stroke, a really bad stroke. And so they couldn't build up here because he needed to stay home uh, near the hospitals in the Vancouver area. So they said that I should move up here. I said, I don't, want a, I don't want a house. I don't want that responsibility. And they said, well, you know, we can't go up there. So if, you know, if you build a house up there, then maybe we could build a suite in the basement and we could, you know, when dad gets better, we can come up and stay and stuff like that. So I realized that it was important to them to do that. I was coming up here thinking I was just going to have my studio, just like I always had. My studio has always been in my home. And so I just figured I'd, you know, have this house, I'd have a studio, I, uh, I would continue doing what I was doing. But then when I actually got here and the house was empty, my stuff hadn't arrived yet, and I was sitting by myself. I mean, this is a big house, right? Like, and uh, I suddenly realized that I needed to ask myself a question. And the question was, did I want to become a part of this community or did I want to continue jet-setting around and doing the research? You know, I was new to the community. Nobody knew me. And like any small community, people are always suspicious, like, who is that person? Where did he come from? People really didn't know me because even though I was up here a lot, uh, we'd just come to the farm. You know, you have to remember it was just dirt roads around here. It was all farmland and people lived far and wide. It wasn't a community like it is now next door to each other. And so we, we would come and go and not see anybody but our family. And my name in English is Wheelick, but in Halkamalam it's Walela. And I've always used Wileluk from the time I was a little girl, you know, when I, I'd heard the elders say that in the language. And so I, that's what I called myself. And then I wrote it in a, one of the old kind of uh, orthographies. And so when I was using that name, I didn't realize that people were hearing it and attaching it to the hist history books that had been written about our family. I realized that I had arrived here on the good, on the goodness of my father, and this is his ancestral land. And I, I realized that I could not uh, um, honor that. And so, how I decided uh, to honor it was to set my work aside because I've, I've reached a place in my career that more than what I ever anticipated, right? I mean, it brought me around the world and I was, you know, exhibit. It was just everybody's dream, you know, mm -hmm. and it was my dream that came true. And so I realized I could afford to set that aside. I never planned to quit. And I did continue to, to work 
with clay, but it wasn't to the degree that it was every single day and I was working for shows and I was teaching and stuff like that in various parts of the world. So, so I took a 10 buck an hour job at the band office. Mm-hmm. Uh, it came up a week after I got here when I made that decision, right, that I was going to become a part of this community. I was doing it because I wanted the community to know who I was and I wanted to get to know the community. And I really looked forward to just getting to know everybody. I don't think any of that's coincidental. I think spirit works in strange ways. And I think that once I had made my mind up that that's what I was going to do, everything fell into place. So I was the first clerk receptionist for Chiatin First Nation. And I just sat there and, you know, would answer telephones. So I'd be sitting here, you know, going, picking up the phone. Good day, Chiatin First Nation. How may I help you? And then uh, I I was also responsible for faxes and mail. And, you know, I just did everything a clerk receptionist would do. And I kept getting these faxes from a place called Stolosholi, and it kept on saying in big, bold letters, learn your indigenous language, take Halkamalem language courses. And I kept getting them, and I kept posting them, and I kept reading them and going, wow, you know, I wonder if I could do that. Like, And I thought, I don't know if I'm smart enough to learn the language. And I really fought with myself, because I, every time I saw it, I kept thinking, wow, I wonder if I could do that. No, I don't think you can. I don't think you're smart enough. Like, just because that wasn't my area, right? Mm. And so finally I said to myself one day after, I I was just tired of fighting with myself. Can I do it? Can't I do it? I thought, well, the only way I'm going to learn if I can is to try it. So I enrolled in one of their classes, and then there were just community classes, you know, held at Stalo Nation in a little kind of like trailer that was called Stolosholi. <laughs> and then and then I, I started doing that and I did four levels of community classes and uh... my father's ancestors came from Chilliwack Lake. Chilliwack Lake was a really special spiritual place, not only for the people here, but for the Shwalam from as far as as uh, a Kalispell and various, you know, way over toward the Soyuz up north. People would come there to do uh, training and uh, spiritual work. So that's where our ancestral home was. And the original language that my ancestors um, spoke was closer to the Nooksack language. Tlachalism it's called. And so we migrated down over the course of like you know, four or five hundred years and ended up here in this, it was then called Sardis. And uh, we built an ancestral home up on one of the points here called Kakakatl, which means watery eaves. And it was very well known and it's been really highly documented. Our family was really highly regarded because they were very community minded. Because our family built watery eaves, which was really unusual what we did, we first of all, we invited everybody to come and help us so that they'd always feel at home in our big longhouse. And then our roof was an inverted gabled roof to hold water. But what it did was it also had uh, sculptures of ravens on either end. And uh, if it was like a lookout. 
and it looked down the valley. And so when all the people were down below and they were fishing uh, near the what's now called the Vedder River and the Chilbok River area, if there was people coming into the territory, you have to re- remember it was all thick bush and stuff like that, uh, they, they would pull um, a lever that would release the water through the mouth of the raven and it would create a high-pitched whistle and everybody would know that they had to come back to the house, to the big house, right? You know, at one time we all spoke, we were multilingual. We spoke four, six languages, right? And so we had to because we married into other, you know, other people. We didn't marry within ourselves, we married outside. And so we all learned. And so we're down to one language each at this point, which is, you know, small compared to what we once once spoke. One time, I, you know, we were studying and we were practicing sounds, you know, like and and various things like that that aren't found in the uh, English language. And all of a sudden, uh, tears welled up in my eyes and tears started rolling down my face. And I had no idea why. Mm. And I... I, and it wasn't, I wasn't sobbing and I wasn't crying, but I kind of stopped and felt my cheek and I went, wow, there's tears coming out of my eyes and I don't know why. And so I had to ask myself, you know, what's, what's going on? And no one really noticed because it just was a very subtle kind of thing. And I realized what it was. Uh, the answer that came to me, it was kind of like in my Auntie Amy's voice in a way. And it was like her saying, well, you're using sounds and muscles that haven't been used for more than a generation. And I found that so moving that I just was, it was an epiphany. And so I realized that when you learn to speak your ancestral language, it awakens your shuli or your spirit. And when that happens, you get to know not only who you are, but who your ancestors were. And that embedded in our language are the schamas. It's the gifts that come with the stories. It's the stories that talk about our land and reflect our thoughts and feelings about that and our understanding and affiliation about the land. Our stories are written in the land. We have transformation stories about people getting changed into trees, about people getting changed into stone, uh, people getting changed into uh, various aspects of the landscape, right? And so when you start to understand these things, you realize that uh, language and culture are not divisible that it's holistic. You also learn that there is no beginning and no end, that there is no life and there is no death, that our ancestors, when you go to the other side in what people call death, that you carry with you all your things that you've learned. And when you change back into that kind of energy, because basically we're all energy in the house and thin skin, that you're capable of bestowing 
what you learned to the newborns, to the people who are wanting, their spirits wanting to come into this world. And so they come into this world with schamas, with gifts, and that it's the people who are alive, it's their responsibility to nurture those gifts and to watch them and to guide them so that they can reach their fullest sentient beingness. Mm -hmm. And so in that way, there is no beginning and there is no end. There's only a continuum. The way people look at life now is that some people will pray to a God, but we don't need to pray to a God because we are God. Because all God is is energy and it's the unknown. And so we understand the unknown. There is no unknown. We know that we are energy and that we can transform. And so that's our creation stories too. Chels and Chachels, they're capable of making these transformations. Like my ancestral story on my dad's side is the black bear with the white spot on his chest. And quickly in a nutshell, it's like, Two, two men go hunting. One says, I feel, I'm starting to feel weird. He says, uh, I think I'm changing into a bear. He changes into a bear. He jumps up onto a limb of a tree. He looks at his brother, and his brother's got a bow, and he's saying, um, go back to our bone, because that's how they refer to family, is our bone. Go back to our bone and tell them that we will always feed the people. And... Uh, and make sure that we're all buried together. And so in that story, it's what it's saying is, you, you can say, well, maybe it happened and maybe it didn't, but our transformation stories are there to remind us that we are not in this world alone and that they're there to remind us to, in my case, in this particular case, feed the people. And that doesn't always mean food. I'm feeding the people by learning my ancestral language. Mm -hmm. I'm feeding my ancestors by honoring them for carrying the language mm -hmm. so that I can share it. Learning your ancestral language gives you a window into uh, certainly the way your ancestors viewed the world around them. Because embedded in our language is, yes, they're verbs and actions, but, but they're also describing thoughts and feelings. And so, uh, for example, we call the Squamish people Tlthlas, and Tlthlas means warm wind. And so it's the wind that comes from the direction of where the Squamish people are. It comes from the southwest and, and up the river. I love that because that tells you a lot about how we viewed the people by saying that's the direction that they come from. When I'm working doing ethnobotany out in the field, I'm telling you, it's hard work. So when I'm out doing that, you know, standing in uh, the middle of pouring rain and, and w trying to walk up a slippery slope and, uh, you know, do that stuff, 
I might be out there for 10 hours straight and eat when I'm going. But you know what? When I come home, I am so exhilarated and I feel so good. And I'm so filled with the clouds and the, the rain and the wind. And I'm so um, happy. And I just feel alive. But in, in a way that's full. I feel full. And I drink in that. And it changes you. You know, we see things that are alive in the land. Uh, there's spirit in the land. And when I'm out there, it's just amazing what comes to you. You know, I'll be walking along looking at plants and, you know, writing, taking my notes and doing my GPS. And all of a sudden I'll hear a voice, you know, like, hello. And I'll look around and there's, you know, I'm, the archaeologists are doing their thing. We're scattered all over. But it's like a nurse tree. Or something, right? And I'll, or I see uh, faces in rocks, and I'll stand, and I'll give a little offering, and they'll talk to me. And if yeah. I say to them, "How did you get this way?" Sometimes they'll tell you a story. The ancestors can't understand you if you're not speaking their language. Hmm. They don't know English, right? And I'm not saying that they even know the current Halkamalem, but they do know that my shuli is aligned to something that they've helped pass down. It opens up something that you can hear. It's not even like it's articulated like you and I are talking. That's not what it is. It's just an intuitive way of understanding something. Well, I was really lucky because uh, I mentored to six fluent speaking elders. and. Uh, now, uh, 20 years later, we only have one remaining. There are other people who uh, are fluent speakers, but they're very shy. Some of them are men. All the people that I mentored to were women. The eldest being Satsukhoat, she was, uh, she would come to work uh, when she was 90. I would work with her. Before I came up here, I studied with Agnes Pierre, and then I studied with uh, Satsukhoat, Elizabeth Hurling, uh, Yamalot, Rosaline George, Sally Othelwit, Shirley Julian, and then Tilly Kateris was also one of my teachers. So, the, and currently the one remaining woman that's alive is Siamia Tilliot, Elizabeth Phillips. Not only was I a language student of the language, but I was hired by Stoller Shuli to work with a linguist on uh, developing the curriculum I was taking at the time. What happened was the Education Department of Stala Nation had uh, began discussion with the BC College of Teachers and Simon Fraser University uh, in order to instigate a program called the Developmental Standard Teacher Certificate in Upriver Halkamalam. And that certificate would ladder into uh, an education degree because they were trying to encourage uh, more language teachers, right? I'd been a teacher already for like 30 years in the mm -hmm. arts. And so they asked me if I would become a part of that program. So I ended up at like 49 going back to school, earning a, a degree, a bachelor's degree in honors in linguistics and curriculum development in indigenous languages. It took me 10 years uh, to develop the Halkamalem program for Chiacton. It's still going. It's probably in its 18th year. 
I spent 10 years at UFV uh, working with the elders and our linguists, Dr. Strang Burton, and all the fluent speaking elders I mentored to. I coordinated 14 accredited courses in it, taught them all. And then I taught somebody, I hired, you know, I said, I, I need uh, a lab assistant, and I trained them to take my position. And so now I'm working on working out on the land and tying uh, land uh, story and language together, medicines. It's sharing knowledge. So it's not about teaching. It's about me facilitating, you know, language stuff, making medicines. It's going to be cyclical, uh, run around the moon. And it, it has to be with an adult or a guardian and someone younger than them. It's for free. It's like there's a whole bunch of stuff that I've learned. In a way, it's the way it should have began. But I had to do all of that in order to get to where I am, to the beginning. And so that's where I am now. You know, I'll never forget one time when we were studying, you know, we'd sit together in a circle and we'd, we always had a couple of fluent speaking elders in the classes and people would go around, you know, we'd have sessions of just like speaking about various things, not just the language, but other things, you know, life things. And one time uh, I had said to somebody, it was to my friend, really good friend, Thetsemia, you know, she was always very like forthright about how she felt about things. And some people took it the wrong way. And I said to her one day in this circle, I really want to thank you, raise my hands to you, because, you know, you you say things that make me have to think, and I really like that. And so she was really taken aback, right, by what I said, and she really had to think about it. And I didn't realize that until about a year later, we were in a circle again, and she said, you know, I think that your father went away so you could come back. And then I knew that, uh, that she understood uh, what I was saying to her. You know, we learn to live together and understand and respect one another because we were all getting to know one another. And when she said that to me, I felt like I had been accepted. It took a long time, like it does with any newcomer, right? I was just always, um, I realized that they were here and this was their home and I was a visitor and that I was always as respectful as I could possibly be with that understanding. I don't believe in reconciliation or revitalization yeah. or those kinds of things. And the funny thing is, you know, 500 years ago when the first uh, non-native person landed on here all scurvy ridden and starving and was about to die, and we extended our hand in friendship and we looked after them and brought them back to life, and then they overstayed their welcome and wouldn't leave and still haven't gone, and they're, we're still being trodden upon and treated and our land's been stolen. And if people looked at us and respected us the way that they should be for our ancestral knowledge that we've carried for thousands and thousands of years of this place, people would be better off. There's a lot to be learned from the indigenous people, but nobody's willing to even listen to them. You know what? 
one day when everything goes to hell in a handbasket and earthquakes start happening and waters rise and all the rest of it goes on, you know what the indigenous people are going to do because we still maintain that ancestral knowledge? You'd think we'd slam the door in your face, but we won't because that's not our nature. We'll still help you. So what does that say? That, that tells you that we are not the people that we're being made out to be. We've learned to help one another. And nothing's killed us yet. As a matter of fact, we're just as strong as we once were, contrary to popular belief. So I don't buy into all that stuff. Yeah, we're the highest at every worst thing there is in Canada, right? The highest statistic of everything you want to make a statistic pregnancy, suicide, bad living conditions. But those are man-made things. They're indeed a reality, but that hasn't stopped us from living because it's through your lens. It's through, you know, an outside lens. Do you see what I'm saying? And we've become an economic commodity. Our apparent downfall is creating jobs for social welfare workers. That's how our people are being treated. It's shameful when, in fact, if people gave us the respect that we deserve, we have so much to offer. We have so much knowledge. We understand what resource is. We understand what sharing is. And we understand that you can do it without money. And in that way, we can respect one another. That is what is the heart of it. I walk my talk. And I would never turn my back on anybody, but hey, it would be so easy to do that. But we're not going to do that because that's not the kind of people we are. Or we wouldn't have lasted for 10,000 years or more. We don't see the world uh, as a lot of other people do and take it as face value. I believe that everything is energy, so that means a rock has energy and a stick has energy, right? And a living tree has energy. Or shuli, it's our spirit, it's our life force. Even inanimate objects have that. And so we, you know, we believe things can be transformed by chels and chachels, the transformers. And so that gives you a different perspective and a different way of respecting that which you don't always know. And then when you see the land in a different way, you understand that you are no different than the land. You are the land, and the land is you. When you open yourself up that way, you, you learn. You learn about uh, your connection to the environment and then you grow in a different way. My hope is that that people, uh, all people, can tap into their ancestral roots and can gain the wisdom that's embedded in that. It's all there for you. You know, when you understand where you come from and where you are, then you're on your way to becoming a full-fledged sentient being, right? That's what we're here for to learn about who we are. Hey folks, 
Thank you for being with us on this, our third episode of the Big Bright Dark podcast. And special thanks to Laura Willelak for sharing her experiences and wisdom with so much generosity and to Heather Talbot for the interview. So did Laura's story spark something in you? Do you have ideas or questions you'd like us to explore in upcoming episodes? We welcome all and any feedback. You can find us on the internet at bigbrightdark.org, on Twitter, and of course you can subscribe through Stitcher and iTunes. Big Bright Dark is brought to you by Jana Graisley, Christina Kuhn, Heather Talbot, Justine Townsend, Erica Crawford, and by me, Olive Dempsey. Original theme music is written and performed by Mark Beatty. Additional music in this episode comes to us from Westy Reflector. You can find a link to more work by this artist on our website. We acknowledge that Big Bright Dark is produced on the traditional unceded territory of the Squamish, tsleil and Musqueam people.